last time we looked at um, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, last, last week it was. And that, with along with Isaiah 53, we endeavour to work through, have a look as deeply as the Lord will allow us into those things in that fantastic chapter. Um, but in these words in Isaiah 52, 13, we began with these three words, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. This is God speaking. If you look in the Bible that you have in your hands, no doubt, depending on, on which one it is, but it should be my servant in capital letters. My with a capital M, servant with a capital S. Speaking, of course, of the Saviour to come, the Messiah. We looked at the fact that although we may assume that it is obvious who this is speaking of, who this servant is, that we Christians always need to know for ourselves how we can prove that from Scripture. We looked last week and said, it is obvious who it is. You know, we could talk amongst each other and there would be no question about knowing who Isaiah 52 and 53 is speaking of. But we need to know how to prove it from scripture. Scripture interprets scripture and although we do know who it's speaking of it doesn't say as in particularly that that is who he is. But we managed I believe last week through the scriptures to prove that this is the Lord Jesus Christ prophesied seven, eight hundred years before he was born. Isaiah was a prophet of God one of the probably the most well known prophets of God. He spoke words of God. Behold, my servant is quoted in the first person. My servant. This servant is God's servant. He has come to do the will of his master. This is, of course, what a servant does. A servant comes to do the will of the person or persons whom they serve. And this is what the servant has done. So if the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are co-equal, as we said this morning, if they are co-equal persons in one God, three persons, one God, how can Jesus be God's servant? Again, it's a question, isn't it? that perhaps we might not necessarily think about. If they are co-equal persons, essentially the same, uh, in the sense of their, uh, their power and their omnipotence and omniscience, in their essence as deity, they are completely in unity and equal. So how can this son, this Messiah, be God's servant? As we've seen, these are three in one, and they are distinct, yet they are equal. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the Father or the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Three distinct persons. There is a popular heretical teaching uh, that is, I think it's kind of grown actually quite a lot in the recent years and this heretical teaching denies the Trinity and this is called modalism. I don't know if you've heard of that term before. 
but it's called modalism. Modalism teaches that God is a single person who has eternally existed and yet has revealed himself in three modes or forms. Modalism rejects the Trinitarian belief that God exists at all times as three distinct persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Rather, the modalist believes that God is one person made known in three modes. In the Old Testament, God manifested himself in the mode of the Father. With the Incarnation, God manifested himself in the mode of the Son. And since, or following Jesus' ascension, God makes himself known through the mode of the Holy Spirit. This is problematic. Modalism rejects that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist simultaneously, which means that modalists deny the distinctiveness of the three persons of the Trinity. We believe, at least I hope we all do in this room, that God is one God in three, and he keeps saying it, distinct persons. There is three persons, and yet there is one God. And there is three persons all at one time, not three different modes, or three different expressions, or three different revelations of God at any given time. That's what they believe, and it's heretical, it's wrong. So in the work of salvation, all three persons of the Trinity are involved. If you look at Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6, you don't have to turn to it now, but if you want to make a note of it, it is really quite interesting to look at these portions of Scripture all in Ephesians 1, one after the other. So, if you look in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, you'll see that the plan of salvation is originated with the Father. And when you look in Ephesians 1 verses 7 through 12, you find that salvation is brought to fruition through the Son. And then in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that salvation is communicated or applied by the Holy Spirit. So, Father is the author of the plan and originated with the Father. It is wrought or brought to fruition through Christ, our Saviour, our Mediator. And it is applied to your heart and mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. All three persons always at work. So in the role of mediator, for the reconciliation between God and man, Jesus submitted himself to the Father by becoming his servant, through whom this great work of salvation would be accomplished. Remember, he, came, he became man, and as man, as a Jewish, first century Jewish man, he was subject to the law of God, which he then filled uh, fulfilled, sorry, absolutely. Every jot and tittle he fulfilled. Jesus has two natures. He is both God and he is man. As God the Son, he is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. As man, he subjected himself under the Father's will. That's how he becomes a servant. But how did Jesus serve? Have a look in Romans 3, verse 24 through 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God set forth as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. <clears throat> Here we're faced with the great question that that verse of scripture presents to us. How can our righteous creator forgive sin and also remain true to his character? In Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 we are told that the Lord is slow to anger and in great power and will not at all acquit the wicked. <clears throat> Excuse me. He doesn't just acquit the wicked. God is a God of righteousness. That means he always does that which is right. He is rightness. He is the epitome of righteousness. But he is a God of justice as well. And he wouldn't be true to the character of God's righteousness and his justice if he forgave sin without the just punishment of it. The wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, it says in the scripture that we read, God passed over the sin of his people when they offered sacrifices of bulls and goats according to the law of Moses that God gave. Uh, an article from Ligonier Ministry rightly says this, Justice was not done when people sacrificed bulls and goats. God accepted these offerings in his great forbearance because he knew his son would offer the necessary atonement at the just and right time. The Hebrews says it clearly, doesn't it, that, that the blood of sheep and goats and bulls, they did nothing. Why would we then need a saviour if the bulls, uh, goats and, the, and, the, and all the animals that they sacrificed, blood was sufficient? It wasn't sufficient, but God accepted that's what they were offering to him, forbearing, <clears throat> passing over for their sins until the time that Christ would come and be that ultimate sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Man had sinned, that means man must pay what is due. There is no way of God just turning around and saying, it's alright, don't worry, I'll let you off. Sin needs to be paid for. And man has sinned. And that means man must pay. Man then must die. The wages of sin is death. But herein lies the problem. That we ourselves could not be our own sacrifice. We couldn't lay down our own lives for our sin. Because we ourselves are the perpetrators of that sin. And the sacrifice, as I'm sure we are aware, must be pure. Is any one of you, is the man standing before you this evening, pure? Absolutely not. Are we spotless? Remember that when they took the lamb from the fold, they took it into the house, I think for three or four days. Might have been more, I may be wrong about that. But it's a good number of days. Why? So they could constantly check over it. 
every part of its skin, its legs, its head, its ears, its eyes, whatever it was, it was looked at, so that they could make sure that whatever they were going to sacrifice had no blemishes at all. He could not offer to God anything, any animal that had any blemishes. So it had to be spotless, innocent, and blameless. And we just are not that. Far from it. Only Jesus, the spotless lamb, could fill and fulfill this. Only him, the spotless lamb of God, could fulfill this sacrifice. And so the passage in Romans tells us that in order for God to be just and for him to be the justifier of his people, Jesus Christ the righteous was set forth as a propitiation. What then is a propitiation? What does it mean when he said that he is set forth as a propitiation? Well, in the Old Testament, according to the law given to God, by God to Moses, the high priest, Aaron at the time, was to go through rigorous purifications and offer sacrifices to God in the holy place, beyond the veil, or inside the veil of the tabernacle, the most holy place. This he had to do exactly according to divine specifications. Exactly. That's how serious God took it. One step out of it, Adam would probably die within the veil. The blood of the sacrifices were to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. I'm sure you've heard of the mercy seat. The mercy seat which was the lid or the top of the covering of the Ark of the Covenant had cherubims on either side where the wings almost met called the mercy seat. The rest of the offering whose blood was used to make atonement was then carried outside of the camp and burned. And this was done once a year which was called the Day of Atonement. This is all Again, a prefigure of everything that the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. Propitiation literally means mercy seat. Jesus came to pour out mercy upon sinners by becoming that sacrifice whose blood makes atonement for all of his people. As the bull was burnt outside the camp, so Jesus too was hung on a cross outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. The blood of bulls and goats were unable to wash away the sin of the people. Even in the constant sacrificing of millions of them over the years. They would have been. I mean if you read the Old Testament and you look at the constant countless sacrifices. I read it now and I wonder how, how, how more animals could be born quick enough in order to sacrifice the amount they were sacrificing. It's just innumerable. But even those millions of animals that were slaughtered over the years, it wasn't enough. It was not enough. <clears throat> All a prefigure of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died once. All these other animals, millions of them, they died, they partook of the flesh in certain parts of it, other parts were burned. But Jesus Christ died once and once for all. That is how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is. It took him 
wants to die. To be propitious is to be merciful. When we cry to God for mercy, we're asking him to be propitious to us, to be merciful, to show mercy to us. Not only did the sacrifice of Jesus deal with our sin, that would be expiation only. Not only did it deal with our sin, but it actually took God's face, if you like, that was turned away from us and turned it back towards us in favour. That's what the propitiation does. He didn't merely deal with our sin and leave us to ourselves. If he'd have done that, we'd have just gone back to our old way. He can forgive us of our sin, but he didn't just do that and leave us and say, right, go your way, now go and live. He didn't do that. He saved us for himself. And in giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit, he enables us to then go on to live for him and become adopted sons in the household of God. Isn't that just a wonderful thing? It's not like we're standing in the courts and they say, you've paid the price, or the price has been paid for you. Now there's the door, go and live your life. Jesus didn't do that. He transforms his people. He puts in their heart a new heart, should we say. Takes away the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And he turns his face towards us in favour. And he so transforms our hearts that we long to live for him. And he helps us and maintains us. Gives us everything, as it says in Peter, that we need to live our life and to be living in godliness. He gives us all that we need. Because he, he's done it all for himself. Quoting from the article again that I read previously, briefly. In putting forth Jesus as our propitiation, the Lord vindicated his righteousness, ensuring that he remains just, even as he becomes the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. God provides what sinners need to be righteous in his sight without compromising his justice. When we were accounted righteous in Christ, justice is still done. We do not feel the punishment our sin deserves. Instead, Jesus suffered in our place. Isn't that remarkable? That we no longer are counted guilty for the sin because Jesus took it all upon himself. He is both the just and, and when, we, when we look to that, don't think for a second that because it was his own son that he held anything back. The full wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus Christ, his son. The full wrath of God he endured. The sin, which wasn't his. He suffered, as it says, there in our place. Dr. R.C. Sproul writes in his commentary on Romans, in the drama of justification, God remains just. He does not set aside justice. He does not waive his righteousness. He insists upon it. If all he did was maintain his righteousness without extending the imputation of that righteousness to us, he would not be the justifier. 
He is both just and justifying, which is the marvel of the gospel. Only in biblical religion does God remain just when he forgives people. So if he'd have just been, if he'd have just taken the punishment, as he said there, if he all he did was maintain his righteousness, he, he would just be just. But he wanted to be just and the justifier. And he could only do that and remain both and true to his character by punishing his righteous, spotless son, pouring out his full wrath and imputing his righteousness to us. It's almost like, in fact, it's not almost, it is. Our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. That is the great marvel, as it says there, of the gospel. So Jesus, as it says in our text, didn't come to serve in the sense of being beneath or below mankind. If John the Baptist knew his unworthiness to even stoop down to unloose Jesus' sandal straps, far be it from us to bring Christ down to such a level as to make him our slave. Jesus came to serve what we could not serve ourselves. He served up, if you like, what we could not serve ourselves. We were utterly helpless to help ourselves. Christ died while we were still sinners. As the scripture says, at the point, at the time, while we were still enemies of God. Can there be any greater servant than this? John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. In the heading of my Bible, I don't know about yours, but in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28, the heading is this. Greatness is serving. Greatness is serving. Who is the greatest person that's ever lived? Well, we must admit that it's got to be Lord Jesus, isn't it? And he was the greatest servant. In the account taken from Luke 22, the disciples are found to be arguing with one another about which of them should be considered the greatest. Can you imagine that, being with Jesus? And Jesus has walked ahead a little bit, and they're arguing behind him, saying, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest. It's very, I mean, after all they had seen him do, they're arguing about how great they are. Such a lack of humility. But Jesus said to them, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who served. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. You see, what Jesus does here by saying that is that he emphasises the truth about his own greatness. He speaks of the one who sits at the table. He is the one who sits at the table. And he is the one who should be served. 
for he is the Lord of all creation. And yet he says, I am among you as one who serves. I am the one who is at the head of the table, and yet here I am, taking off my clothes, my apron, wrapping a towel around my waist, bowing down to your feet and washing your feet one by one. Again, the Lord of all creation stooping down to his own creation to wash their feet. It's a marvellous picture of the humility and the mercy and the glory and the, the meekness and the sweetness of who God is. Are we not, as his people, being progressively conformed to his image? That's what the word says, isn't it? That we are being conformed to his image. Are we not then to imitate him? Are we not, figuratively speaking, to wash one another's feet? Are we not commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart? with all our soul, with all our mind and with all our strength and then to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. Let's look again at Jesus' example. Philippians 2, 5-11 This is again another amazing piece of scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11 through 11. Paul emphasises to the Philippian believers she says this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying is, listen to what I'm about to say, listen to what I'm about to tell you, and you take it and you be like this. Let this mind that he had be yours. So he says this, who, speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. So he says to you, be of this mind. You make yourself to be no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Not just death, but the death of such a modern, uh, awful the most agonising torture instrument that there was at the time. He didn't just come and die in his sleep or whatever. He came and he was barbarously. That's the right way of saying it. He was butchered. That's what he did. And he's saying to us, let this mind be in you. Wow. Let this mind be in you that was also in him. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, my friends, means every tongue. Every knee. He says every tongue in heaven, every tongue on earth, every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, will bow and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That means the most wicked, the most, the most evil, spitting person that there is. 
will bow the knee and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God willing, all of those in us, of this, in this room tonight, will bow the knee willingly through our love for the Saviour. Honourably, humbly, wonderfully, willingly and happily and joyfully bow the knee and confess his name. But there will be those who will do it because they can do no other. If God has highly exalted him, ought we not highly exalt him in our lives by serving him? The Bible tells us that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. The price of the life of the Son of God. We owe God our lives. Not only physically, but spiritually. Whilst we were dead in trespasses and sin, he made us alive. So why we were dead in trespasses and sin? We were dead, spiritually speaking, and God has made us alive. And as we serve God, well then, we ought to serve one another. <coughs> to love one another as Jesus loved us was his command not long before he ascended to the Father. That's how important it is. And he said this, if you love one another, all of those around you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It is a great command that we ought to love one another. And it might be an interesting study to look into what that really means. How ought we to love one another? Because... I am assured even here this evening at this very moment that it's more than just giving somebody a hug when you go out the door. It'd be interesting to look into that. Allow me to finish by reading some scripture from Romans chapter 12. This is Paul giving a, an exhortation to the Romans and it's a Great chapter. I beseech you, therefore, verse 1 says, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace God given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honour, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. We ought to be givers. We ought to be kind. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the chapter of Romans 12. And Paul gives great emphasis there on how we ought to live. And he, does, he, does, he doesn't give any, any room there for us to be high-minded or haughty. But that we should serve God humbly with all of our hearts. And we should serve one another. And Jesus Christ is our prime example because he came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as I've said, we ought to have that same mind in us that we can be servants of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. We thank you, Lord, for that great truth of the fact that you said that you came not to be served, but to serve. Lord, what a humble thing for the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth and the universe and all that we have and see to say and do such a thing. And Lord, that you would leave the chambers of glory where you were with the Father for all eternity and to take upon yourself the tabernacle of the flesh not only for a time, but Lord, forever. For you remain both man and God. And you have joined together once again through that sacrifice, both man and God, who were so far apart, the chasm so great that we were unable to mend ourselves. So Lord, we thank you for that service. Lord, and I pray that you enable every one of us to know what it is to truly seek after mirroring that service. Lord, you are, as it says in Isaiah 52, God's servant. And Lord, would you make us then God's servants, the servants of the Lord Jesus. May we be found to be washing each other's feet, to love each other, and Lord God, to be actually seeking actively to know what it is to serve one another, and primarily, Lord, to serve you. Lord, we pray that we may speak as Paul speaks, 
uh, spoke in most of his letters when he said he termed himself Paul, a bondservant, a bondslave, a slave, a servant of Christ Jesus. May we all be found to be just that. Lord, glorify your name in each person, I pray here tonight. And Lord, that you would make us humble, meek and mild Christians in this generation. And Lord, help us, we pray, as we read at the end of Romans 12 there, to actually do the opposite to our enemies that we would want to do. To love them, to serve them, and actually to seek to do all the good that we can do. Help us not to do according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.